five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq, and that's space followed by the letter Q. We need your support to make this weekly show. My guest this week is Tori Bruno, the president and CEO of United Launch Alliance, or as it's commonly called, ULA. Bruno joined ULA from Lockheed Martin in August 2014 with a mission to evolve the company in an increasingly competitive market where competitor SpaceX was nipping at their heels to garner a portion of the very lucrative military launch business. In his four years at the helm of the company, he's had to make many changes, including downsizing the company, making the Atlas V more competitive by dropping the price by as much as 37%, developing plans for the next generation rocket named Vulcan, and more. As you'll hear from Bruno, there's also been some culture change, and innovation and reusability isn't just what SpaceX does. Importantly to ULA, their next rocket, Vulcan, will feature the Advanced Cryogenic Evolve Stage, or ACES Upper Stage, that the company is betting heavily on. Welcome, Tori, to the Space Q podcast. Well, thank you for having me. You were appointed in your current role in 2014. Your task, in part, was to create the business to match current and future market conditions. That's not an easy task for any business, let alone a rocket launch provider and one that is owned by two huge aerospace companies in Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Four years later, how would you characterize your progress? Oh my gosh, we have gotten so much done in such a short span of time. We, you know, we started out as the only provider in industry who could fly all of these missions and we were charged to be the custodian of assured access with multiple platforms, multiple rockets, and we've moved into an environment that the industry has matured within so that it is now competitive. We have simplified our product offering. We significantly lowered our costs all the while maintaining our perfect record. So I feel very good about what we've been able to do in such a short amount of time. Now, in looking at your record, which is impressive, it looks like you average about 10 launches a year and you're on track for 10 launches this year. However, they're all for government contracts such as National Reconnaissance Office, NASA, and the military. You said yourself you need to sign on more non-military commercial contracts going forward. You signed Astrobotic to a launch next year and Bigelow for a mission in 2022. How difficult difficult will it be to change the ratio of government to non-government launches in the coming years before your new rocket Vulcan comes into service? Well, I feel very confident that Atlas brings a lot to this marketplace. We're looking for a handful of missions that really need that schedule assurance, performance, and reliability that Atlas can deliver. And I feel very good about uh, the prospects of, of being able to convey that value to that, to that marketplace. There's, there's plenty of opportunity there. Now, with an expected decline in military launches uh, anticipated in the next few years, um, can ULA survive on a, on a smaller uh, number of launches each, each year, say six or so, until Vulcan comes into service? 
absolutely could, and we've done our financial analysis so that we understand those sensitivities. However, there is good news in that while we are seeing competition in the marketplace and we're expecting a very deep decline or dip, sort of a valley, if you will, in the military national security space missions, as time has progressed and we have entered that window, that decline or that valley is not nearly as deep as it had originally been forecasted to be. And the commercial missions that NASA is uh, operating for space station are also doing better than we had hoped they would do. So altogether, the dip is not as deep or as long as we thought it would be, and we're really feeling pretty good about the marketplace. Okay. Earlier this year, you announced you would be taking over the marketing of the Atlas V. What changes, if any, have you made that would make the case of selling an Atlas V launch more compelling? Well, one of the big changes is the price of an Atlas V launch has declined 35, 36, in some cases, depending on configuration, as much as 37% as a result of the other things we've done in our business. So now we're able to offer that you know, great platform at a much more affordable uh, sticker price. Culture is an important part of any business. Is the culture at ULA changing? Does it need to change? And I ask this in context to your competitors at SpaceX and, and Blue Origin. Well, the answer is yes and no. And what I mean by that is there are elements of our culture that we don't want to change and we have not allowed to change. Our focus on mission success our dedication to our customers' missions and putting them first. That's kind of core to our identity, and we're not have, you know, having any interest in seeing that alter. But what is changing is a much greater focus on ingenuity and innovation and the can't-do attitude that has to accompany that. And one other thing that I've really emphasized as we went through our transformation is a more uh, sort of pronounced and, and widespread speak up transparent culture. So when you're doing these very difficult missions, especially when you're changing things about how people work together, we want people at any level to feel empowered and, and safe to speak up and ask questions and challenge what's happening so that everybody's input comes into play and we get the right answer. So you could think of it almost as a very academic environment where it's perfectly okay to you know, challenge the boss's idea and have a debate about it and then come to a consensus or sometimes a decision when a consensus can't be reached and then everybody grabs a rope and pulls it in the same direction. Okay, so at this time, um, you, like you said, your price—the uh, price of the Atlas V has gone down. Some, in some cases, down thirty-seven percent. But you're still hard pressed to, to, to compete with SpaceX on price. But you've been making the case that your rockets are reliable, and that your launch schedule is stable, and there's a lot of value in that. Now, SpaceX reliability has improved to the point that I don't know if you can make the case. Uh, with that argument. However, they still have launch scheduling issues, though that appears something that they're improving as well. How will you adapt your marketing message as as things change? Yeah, so in a competitive marketplace, all differentiators change with time. 
So as you show that you can do something really well, your competitors will emulate you, and then you have to have something new that you do. So we talk a lot about our on-time record and our, our reliability, because those are the most obvious things to people, and they can have numbers assigned to them. The insurance industry charges less money when you fly in an atlas, for example, and revenue streams for commercial um, satellites uh, are delayed if you don't fly on time and they have a certain you know, cash flow that you can put a number on. So all that's pretty easy to work with. But what you don't hear as much, because it's a little bit more technical, is that we have other differentiators. Our rockets are extremely accurate. They can fly very complex high energy missions. We can generally place our customer satellite much closer to their final destination orbit which extends their life and begins their revenue stream earlier. So those are very durable differentiators and we intend to extend those as well. When we move into Vulcan, it's not just a bigger, less expensive, more flexible rocket. It has a very much improved upper stage, which is where much of that happens. And we'll continue pushing that technology and performance envelope and maintain that separation between us and the field. I have a few Vulcan questions coming up shortly, but I, there's a personnel issue that I that I wanted to bring up as well. Earlier this year, you added John Elbon as the uh, chief operating officer. Uh, what does it mean to bring someone in with John's experience to the team? Gosh, John is just a really great addition to our team. He has a really broad, deep, long experience in operations, manufacturing rockets, flying rockets, understanding customers' needs and working with them to find solutions. And honestly, John is just a joy to work with. So we're pretty excited to have him, and I think we're a stronger team as a result. Does it take any workload off of you? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason you have a chief operating officer is so that you can have a person focused on operations. And we... um, it really appreciate John's expertise and depth there. So it allows me to focus more on strategy and external activities while you know John has that internal work well in hand. All right, so let's talk about Vulcan a little bit. Um, what kind of cost savings do you anticipate with the manufacturing of the new Vulcan rocket? It, from my understanding, you know this is going to be critical in, in coming up with a competitive price going forward with a, a new manufacturing process. Yes, so when I came on board, I talked about cutting the cost of launch in half. Atlas and Delta are much less expensive than they were before, especially Atlas, but really it takes Vulcan to push it all the way to that number and maybe a bit beyond. I'm not going to talk specific numbers or how far beyond because we're getting into the competitive range where that actually matters now and that becomes proprietary, but it is key to finishing that. How does it do it? It does it through the capability and flexibility of the rocket, but as you touched on, also more modern manufacturing techniques in our factory. So we have invested a lot of money in really updating our Decatur facility, the largest you know, rocket factory on the continent, to have much more additive manufacturing and uh, automated manufacturing and less hands-on you know, uh, activities that take a lot of labor hours and are prone to error, now there's a higher degree of automation and precision 
so that our talented and skilled you know technicians can do the parts of the rocket that are most critical and the other parts can be done efficiently at lower cost so you recently selected the rl uh, 10 engines for the vulcan upper stage However, it's my understanding that the first stage engine choice is still not definitive. The Blue Origin BE-4 engine appears to be the front runner. Can you say when a definitive decision will be made on which engine you'll choose? I can absolutely say that it will be soon. Okay. In looking at the uh, at the Vulcan, it seems to me one of the most critical technologies for its and your future success is the advanced cryogenic evolved stage known as ACES. ACES would replace the Centaur stage in future configurations of the rocket. How is development progressing on ACES and why is it a game changer? Yeah, development is progressing well. It's at a slower pace than the basic Vulcan booster because we have to do things you know, in priority order. And the majority of, of my investment and my staff is working on Vulcan. We're continuing ACES in parallel and focusing primarily on the key enabling technology that makes it an ACES, which is something we call IVF or integrated vehicle fluids. That's this piston engine. Probably it'll be the first piston engine to fly in space, at least in my knowledge. And it will operate on waste propellants from the main uh, tanks that would normally be vented to space. So we're making very good progress there with our partner, Roush, the race car company. And um, uh, we're basically right on track. And as Vulcan booster work begins to tail off, then we'll ramp up the speed on, on ACES. You asked, you know, how it will revolutionize things. I cannot, you know, overstate what a change that is. ACES, it's a, this is 1900 and we've invented the airplane. That's the radical nature of this change. It'll have a tremendous amount of energy, but much more importantly, it will be able to operate on orbit for extraordinarily long periods of time. Today, Centaur, world's longest operating stage, runs for eight hours. You need that to do these complicated orbits. This thing will run for as long as three to five years in orbit and be able to be refueled and extend that life even further. All of a sudden, we're talking about a practical in-space transportation system kind of thing that will enable all sorts of economic activities in Earth orbit and beyond into cislunar space. And when would uh, ACES uh, go into um, production? We're planning to cut it in around 2023 or 2024. And when we do and, and arrive at at a sufficient production rate, then it'll be a hard cutover and we'll stop uh, flying the Centaur 5 and we'll only fly the Aces. Are there any technology issues that are coming up that are maybe a little bit more challenging than you thought they would be with, uh, with Aces? Well, the big thing in front of us on Aces is really, again, in that IVF module, we've been testing it in separate components. You know, there's a piston engine, there's a heat exchanger, compressor, there's an electric generator, and we've been testing those elements separately. The next big thing is to put them all together into a fully integrated system and operate them in that way, which is something we'll be doing very soon. 
there's a potential there for learning that will be important to our technologists. And will ASIS, uh, are there any competitors out there, do you think, that will be able to provide a similar technology in the time frame? I don't think anybody's at all close to that. We've seen no evidence of, of people attempting to pursue this channel, and certainly no one nearly as far along as we are. We've been working this for a number of years, and I think have done a fairly good job of protecting our intellectual property as well. All right. Uh, and of course, this is also going to be used in cislunar space, if I understand correctly. Yes, absolutely. It is the thing that will provide the transportation network that will enable that cislunar economic activity that we like to talk about. All right. Um, now, the FAA Annual Compendium of Commercial Space Transportation for 2018 uh, on page 717, actually lists the estimated price per launch cost range for the Vulcan as 85 to 260 million. Is this accurate or where did they get those numbers? Well, I can say that they did not get those numbers from me um, and I prefer not yet to comment on what we're gonna offer Vulcan at because we're coming very close to offering it into the marketplace and therefore the pricing is proprietary and competitive. I don't want to do all of my competitors' uh, competitive intelligence work for them. Okay, so we'll uh, have to find out how the FAA got that. Um, you launched rocketbuilder.com so potential customers could, figure, could configure various options and price out a rocket. I think that was a smart marketing move. How's it working out? Rocket Builder has been really a great tool for us, and we have the capability of monitoring, you know, how much it's getting used and, and where the people are at least located geographically who come in. So we get a good feel for who finds it interesting, and obviously places where all of our customers reside come in and use the tool and learn about the tool. But really, the other thing that has been the most fun for me, and this was always a secondary objective, which was to support STEM. We have seen actually the majority of the people who use Rocket Builder coming there from universities and colleges, high schools, uh, private people who were just space enthusiasts. So it's had a much larger sort of splash and footprint in general STEM education than I had anticipated. And I think that's pretty cool as well. Okay, that's uh, very interesting to know. Um, now, I just have a couple of questions, so we're actually doing quite well on time here. Um, a lot of people talk about SpaceX, so much so that SpaceX doesn't advertise much. And I can tell you that as a media company with a sizable audience, we'd like to have them on board and as, and as an advertiser. <laughs> Uh, and while Blue Origin doesn't get the same kind of constant media attention of SpaceX and Elon Musk, uh, it's a company to keep a close eye on. So from a company, from a competitive perspective, say five, ten years down the road, do you see Blue Origin possibly as a more serious competitive threat? After all, its founder, Jeff Bezos, isn't shy about spending money he's making from Amazon, and his pockets are a lot deeper than SpaceX, and he's not focusing on colonizing Mars? 
Well, I would say it's a pretty neat time to live in when we have an industry that's matured to the point where we're talking about multiple providers. Once upon a time, there was really maybe one company, us, and even before that, maybe two companies that could do these kinds of missions. So I think that's pretty cool. In terms of Blue's future, you know, they have a tremendous focus on space tourism and the moon, which is a little bit different than where our focus is as well. And a healthy attribute of a diverse marketplace is a set of companies that are not all the same. If everybody's making exactly the same thing and doing exactly the same thing, in the end, you don't really have competition because you don't really have a meaningful choice. So what I like to see is that kind of diversity where they're specializing in different parts of the market, they're bringing different solutions into the marketplace, they probably overlap in the middle, which creates that competitive space, so it drives innovation and lower costs, but at the same time, they're each going in a little bit different direction, which expands the horizons for humanity in space. So that's really how I see this, and Blue is one of those players. They have a little bit different focus and center of, of their business than we do, a little bit different than Elon and Gwyn have, and I think that's really healthy, and I'm pleased to see it. Now, one aspect of SpaceX's reusability. What about the Vulcan? I mean, I know you've talked about, I think it was um, getting the second stage, the Centaur stage, and and parachuting down and and, and maybe recovering that, but is reusability something that's that's in the future for Vulcan and, and in your thinking? Yeah, it absolutely is. We're just taking a little bit different approach. So we are pursuing really two major elements of reuse. One is, of course, the ACES stage itself, which is a inherently reusable and refuelable upper stage that will stay in space, breaking the paradigm that people have in their minds that to reuse something, you have to bring it back to Earth, recover it, take it to a factory, refurbish it and fly it again. With ACES, you reuse it in orbit. No reason to take all that energy out that you just put in. The other element are our engines on the booster, or looking at reusability for the booster, which is what SpaceX is currently doing. But we have a fundamentally different approach and idea behind it. So you could look at propulsive reuse, where you fly to space, you save a lot of your propellant, you hypersonically re-enter back into the atmosphere, you fire up your engines, and you slow down and you land. We've seen SpaceX do that, and it was, it was spectacular. It was really something to see. But when you do that, there's a couple of things that, you, that come along with that. First of all, you saved a lot of propellant to fly home with, so there's a substantial performance impact. As I understand it from looking at their website, it can be anywhere from 30 to 70% of the mass of the payload has to be left on the ground depending on the mission in order to do that. So big performance hit. So that means you can't necessarily do it every single time. If the payload is heavy, you're not going to be able to do that or the orbit is complicated. The other thing that comes with it is logistics of recovery and refurbishment. So there's a certain cost. So you have to use it more times 
in order to recover the cost of refurbishment and recovery, and again, more times to cover the missions that you could not recover at all in order to close up economics and actually save money. So I have no doubt that this can be done, but it comes with its own economic model. So we looked at it from a systems engineering point of view and said, okay, we don't have any interest in anything other than the economics. We're not also trying to build a booster, for example, that could land vertically on Mars. We just want to look at the money. So when we look at it, we asked ourselves, what is the most expensive item on that booster? Well, it turns out that two-thirds the cost of a booster is a single part. It's just the engines. If you take the engine off of a booster, all you have left are some aluminum tanks, and they're not that expensive. So our approach is to burn to depletion, no performance impact at all, separate our engines, parachute them down to the earth, and recover them and bring them behind an inflatable heat shield that NASA is developing for the Mars 2020 mission so that the refurbishment should be trivial, not exposed to hypersonic environments on the way down. So it should be much less costly to refurbish and less complicated to recover. And it kind of boils down to a simple metric. You could think of it this way. Is it better to recover 100% of the value of the booster some of the time or two-thirds of the value all of the time? And the answer to that question is, well, it depends. It depends on the mix and weight of your payloads as you go out into the future. If you have a lot, a lot of super heavy payloads that stress the capability of the rocket, then recovering the engine is going to be the way to go. If that's not true, then it's possible the propulsive flyback will be the way to go. So we've each made our bets on what the market's going to look like in the future, and we've picked two separate solutions. Again, the beauty of competition. You don't get innovation by one guy you know, having a light bulb appear above his head, and he's got this brilliant idea, and then everybody does it and copies it. You get innovation by having lots of people try different things, and then the marketplace determines the winners. Okay. Well, I think you've clarified that, uh, the differences between the two of you. I have one last question, and I know you have to run. Um, and it has nothing to do with our topic, but it's a question I ask all my uh, guests. Uh, what books are you reading or have you read recently, and it doesn't have to be space-related, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend to our uh, listeners? Well, I just started Alan Stern's book on uh, New Horizons, on our Pluto mission. And how's it uh, started? You enjoying it? So I've, yeah, I've just begun and I am really enjoying it. Several of our employees have already read it and they tell me it's great, but you know, no spoilers. So I'm literally, you know, at the very beginning <laughs> of the book. I've just started a couple of days ago, so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. So if you've already read it, Mark, you know, no spoilers, okay? <laughs> I, I actually know Alan, but I don't have a copy of his book yet. But uh, good, good publicity for you, Alan. Um, okay, I, I know you've got to run. Uh, thank you, Tori, for your time today. Uh, hopefully, we can get you on a future podcast and see how things are progressing at ULA. Oh, it was my pleasure, and I'd be happy to talk with you again sometime. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube Podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spacecube. We really appreciate feedback, 
And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.